short and sweet and packed with riches untold. John chapter 14, verse 1, hear then the word of God. Jesus speaks to his disciples in the upper room after having announced that he's leaving. And he says, let your hearts not be troubled. Let not your hearts be troubled, but believe in God. Believe also in me. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. Let's pray. Oh Lord Jesus, we desperately want untroubled hearts and we long to fully put our faith and our trust in God and in You, Lord Jesus. Would You draw near this morning and speak to us out of Your Word with power and with truth. Calm the troubled seas and bring us to peace at Your feet. For we long and ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Jesus is indeed offering in this passage this morning, in this one verse, what every human being desperately wants and is desperately seeking. Whether they know it or not, as we look around, every pursuit the world is striving after, it's, it's, in, it's ingrained in our constitution or in our, um, our liberties. We have, the, we have the right to pursue life and liberty and happiness. The pursuit of happiness, which is peace and contentedness. Everyone wants an untroubled heart. However, Job tells us, it's there in your bulletin under the first point, Job in 14, I think it's 14.1, um, says that a man is born, man who is born of woman is few of days and full of trouble. In other words, it is at the core of human experience that our lives are short and they will be laced, laden with trouble. It's part of our experience. In fact, Jesus is going to say here in just a couple of chapters, in chapter 16, verse 33, Jesus is going to say, in this world you will have tribulation. I don't think He's promising us tribulation, but He is stating the simple fact that this is, this is at the core of our human experience, and it's not going to change in this life. And nowhere in the Scripture, nowhere in the Gospels, nowhere in the New Testament does, does God or Jesus promise us a trouble-free life. But he affirms, in this life you will have trouble. All those who will seek to live a godly life in Christ will be persecuted. As we gather this morning and as we think about what Jesus is saying, you're commanding to us really here, what troubles you? What are your troubles this morning? If you pause and give it some thought. Is it the world stage? Are you troubled about the unrest in the Middle East, about the Arab Spring, about governments toppling, about radical Islamists, and, and unsurety about how the things are going to settle out in the end, and whether we're going to have a series of, of more radical Islamic states, and, and the world is going to be destabilized? Are you worried about the economy, the speed of the recovery, about continued joblessness, about your 401k, about retirement? Are you worried about health care? Obamacare, about unsustainable government spending and practices which put our government and our whole economy at risk. You worried about your personal health, issues that you're facing and dealing with. Are you worried about your parenting? You worried about how your children will turn out? Are you worried about what kind of parent that you are? Worried about your marriage, your job, 
your finances, your spiritual life, your relationship with, with God, your struggles with your sin. What troubles you this morning? Bring it to the surface. And let's lay it at His feet. What is stealing your joy? What is robbing you of your peace? Like Martha when her house is full of guests. And Jesus says to her, you are, Martha, Martha, you're worried and anxious and upset about many things. And that is, that is truth about all of us. We are worried and anxious about many things. And at one level, that's natural. It's something that in many ways you would expect because we should care. And there's a certain amount of concern and responsibility that we have. And so we should care and we should be concerned. But there's this fine line between our, our concern and our care and worry and anxiety. And the loss of our joy and our peace and our contentment. And in the next three chapters, as John, Jesus moves into what we have is John 14, 15, and 16. In these chapters, Jesus is going to be laying out for us a spiritual life. Right? He calls us out of the natural. In many ways, it's natural for us to worry. You know, if you had no heavenly father, you should be worried. <laughs> but he calls us out of the natural into, a, into what is a spiritual life. And really, that is what he pours out here is he says, I'm leaving you guys, but, I'm, but, he, but he calls them and he describes for them and he paints for them this picture of a spiritual life, of the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, how that Spirit will connect His people to Himself and how they are to abide in Him and bear the fruit that comes from Him, the fruit of love and joy and peace. But it's a challenging word that He gives as He starts out this section because it comes to us as a command. This word of peace is a command. It's in, it's in that voice Telling us, you, you could translate it, he has a let not, and it could be, do not let your hearts be troubled. Don't do it. Stop it. Right? Don't let your hearts be troubled. It, it comes as a command. It reminds me as I'm reading it, let not your hearts be troubled. In, in Romans chapter 6, when Paul is talking about what it means to be dead to sin and alive to God, and at one point he says, let not sin reign in your lives. In other words, do not let sin reign. It's that same construction. It's that same feeling. Do not let your hearts be troubled and do not let sin reign in your mortal lives. I mean, these are things that you and I desperately want. Peace and freedom from the power and the taint of sin. And so our hearts cry with Augustine as we talked about a few weeks ago. This what he commands us here. Don't let your hearts be troubled and do not let sin reign in your mortal bodies. And when hearts cry with Augustine, command whatever you will, O Lord, but then give what you command. And as we said a couple of weeks ago, that cry, command whatever you want and give what you command, is, is a confession that, that what Jesus is describing and calling us to and commanding us into is a spiritual life. You know, it is, it, it, it is something that we are not able to live and to produce and to do on our own. And so even though He commands it as the Lord into our lives, recognizing that we do not have the power to live that life, He gives what He commands. He pours out His Spirit. He connects us to Himself. And as the vine abides, the branch abides in the vine, and the life of the vine flows, so He says these things flow into our lives. 
Most of what God requires and commands of us is supernatural and beyond our ability. And so Jesus' remedy for the troubled heart, it's so simple, it's one of those things as I'm talking to people and counseling to people, there's a lot of times that you, when you give the biblical answer, sometimes it just sounds so, you know, trite. It's biblical, it's true, it's right, but it, it sounds trite, it sounds, it sounds weak, it, it sounds too simple. Do not let your hearts be troubled. Believe in your God. <laughs> and believe in Christ, your Savior. Believe. That's Jesus' remedy for a troubled heart. But we need to understand that belief comes here is to trust. Belief is something that is life-shaping. We've got to get away from this idea of just a, an intellectual scent up here, believe that God exists. Simple as that. It's, it's more like, in some ways, and take this with the way, that the grain of salt in the way. It's like believing in the flu. Right? If you believe in the flu, it shapes your the way you live your life. See, I believe in the flu, so I, I, after I shake 300 hands on Sunday morning, first thing I do is I put on, you know, antibacterial stuff. Why? Because I believe in the flu. It shapes my life. Or if you're coughing and sneezing and you're wiping the sweat off your brow and you look feverish, I move to the other pew because I believe in the flu. And if I am starting to get feverish myself, I run to the doctor and I look for the right because, in so, you know, believing in it shapes our lives. And in such a way, faith shapes, belief in God shapes our lives. I, I live my life differently. I do things differently. I, I might sit in a different place and move toward and away from people differently because I believe in God. And when there is a problem, when I think there is an issue, you know, we run to the one who has the remedy. So when he says, believe in God, believe in me, in many ways, Jesus is saying, come to the Father. Come to me. You who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest for your souls. I will give you what you seek. So this is a word for all of us, not just the twelve. You know, this command is basically repeated in, in different language in Philippians chapter 4. I've copied it into your bulletin there under the first point. Where the same command comes to us when Paul writes to the Philippian church and he says, do not be anxious about anything. Isn't that the same thing as saying, let not your hearts be troubled? Do not let your hearts be troubled. Be at peace. Do not be anxious about anything. He this, he's not quoting Jesus. He's certainly alluding to Jesus. And then in the place where Jesus says, believe in God, believe also in me, Jesus says, come to us. Paul says, come to us, right? By prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, make your request known to God. Pour out your heart to the Father. Come to the Father. Come to the Son. And the peace of God that you seek will be given. It surpasses understanding and circumstances in, the, in life and it will guard your hearts and minds and it flows to us in Christ. Prayer is the expression of faith that seeks from the Father all those things that the heart desires. You know, this is a very troubling night for the disciples. This is this moment in time, in, the, in all the years these guys have walked with Jesus, there have been some troubling moments, there have been some anger, there have been some fear, there have been some stuff going on, but this moment is pretty, pretty radically troubling for them. Jesus himself is troubled. 
If you remember back in chapter 13, verse 20, 21, he said, after saying these things, Jesus was troubled in his spirit, and he testifies, one of you is going to betray me. So Jesus, this is the night of his betrayal, and he knows it. The betrayer is at hand. Now he's dismissed the betrayer, who's actually out betraying him even as he speaks. Right? Jesus is troubled, and we know he goes from here just an hour or so later. He's in the Garden of Gethsemane praying with sweating blood as he prays. So Jesus, the, uh, you know, and this is why it's troubling for the disciples. The unflappable Jesus is flapped. I looked it up. Isn't that a great word? Unflappable, right? He is, he's, you know, he, he, you, can't, you can't flap him, and he looked it up too, and that's a real word. He's flapped. Right? He's, he's disturbed. He's, he's unsettled. He is, and, and so this, these guys taste it in these moments. It's a very troubling night for them. The unflappable rock has been flapped and he's announced his departure. He's leaving. I'm going somewhere and you can't come is the essence of his message that they've received uh, at least to some degree so far and they don't understand. Where is he going? Why can't we come? Where are you going, Jesus? This wasn't a three-year contract that they signed up for. But these guys are all in. Right? They're all, these guys are all in. They've walked away from everything. For three years, they have simply followed and lived their entire... Jesus has been everything to them for three years. Left family, home, businesses, friends, hometowns. They've wandered like nomads with this guy. They're all in with Jesus. And now he says, game over. I'm leaving. Where are you going? You can't come. Why can't we come? Where are you going? No king, no kingdom, no Jesus. So they're confronted with this problem. They, they don't know any obvious solution to it. They're facing the pain of loss. Their future is uncertain. They don't know what's going to happen next. Life as they know it literally is over. Right? We reach those junctures in our lives. Life as we know it is over. Something has radically changed. We don't know what's going to happen next. Life is uncertain. And these guys stand here facing an honest Peter in verse 37 as he leads into this section. Lord, why can't I follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. Right, he, he says that question that all of us, when we stand in a moment like this, life as we know it is over, the future is uncertain, and we ask the question, why? Right? Why? Lord, why can't I come with you? Where is it you're going that I can't follow? I don't get it. Right? I will do anything. I'm willing to die. If this means i got to die, Lord, I will do anything. Why can't I come with you? Sounds familiar, doesn't it? I'll do anything, Lord. I don't like this. Please, why can't you change it? I, I will do anything if you will change it. I don't understand what you're saying. I don't understand what you're doing. I don't understand why it has to be this way. And it is into this chaos, it is into this troubled heart that Jesus speaks these words. Right Where Jesus now into the disordered, confused, and worried heart of disciples who are, who are just been cut adrift and set a sea. 
And he calls for peace. It reminds me of Jesus at the time he's traveling in the boat with the disciples. And again, they're worried and confused. A storm is blown up. And Jesus asks him, oh, first he says, oh, you have little faith, right? I mean, he, he, what's missing in that picture? Believe in God. Believe also in me. But what we also see in that picture is a Jesus of power. Lord, who speaks and says, peace, be still. And it is. This is the word he speaks into our hearts through faith. And he calls us to believe. So let's look at these two briefly. Believing in God. He says, believe in God and believe also in me. And when he says believe in God, he's not talking about just any God. There are those out there, out there who would take that and say believe in God and they would just take it out of context and do all kinds of funny things with it. And it doesn't matter what you believe as long as you believe. It doesn't matter what God you believe, it all leads the same. They would go afield. But when Jesus says this, I tell you, there's a context here. When He says this, He's not talking about any God. He's talking about the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who is revealed in the Old Testament. Jesus loved the Old Testament. Jesus says, I came not to... to, to uh, uh, you know, to strike any jot or tittle even from what is written in the Old Testament. I've come to fulfill every single word and letter and meaning and power. And when he talks to his disciples, he says, all of these scriptures, they speak of me. The Old Testament is all about Jesus. It's all about his God. He's there to fulfill. As they quote throughout the Gospels, you'll see everything Jesus done. They said, this was to fulfill the scripture. This was to fulfill the word of God. Wasn't it that God said this? And wasn't it that God said that? Jesus is talking about the God of the Old Testament. No, no New Testament has been written. The one true God is revealed to us in the Scripture. This is the God who is the creator and the maker of all things. He's not only the, the, the designer of all that is made, as an intelligent designer, He is the owner and the Lord of all He has made. He stands as the Almighty Sovereign, reigning over heaven and earth. In the Scripture, He reveals Himself to us. And as, as saints through the ages have tried to know this God, they have, they have, they have mined the Scriptures for, for things that, that He reveals to us about Himself. And we make lists, we collect stuff. And so we have what all theologians have. You can buy the books, buy the title, The Attributes of God. Right? The, the essence and character and the nature of our God. And then it lists things about who He is that the Bible reveals us. And what I've done is I've done the tedious thing of actually putting in here a quote from the Westminster Confession of Faith. It's rather long. But the Westminster, these guys labored for three years over this very short document. And they say things in very short order that take years to formulate and to mine and to pithily put together and to say uh, things that need to be said. And so here is their, their statement about this God. There is but one living and true God who is infinite in being and perfection. He's a most pure spirit. He's invisible. He's without body, parts, or passions. He is immutable. He does not change. He is immense. He is infinite. He is eternal. And he lives before and, 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 and at the end of all time. He is incomprehensible. He's almighty. He's most wise. He's most holy. He is most free. He's most absolute. He works all things according to the counsel of His own immutable and most righteous will for His own glory. He's most loving and gracious and merciful and long-suffering. 
He is abundant in goodness and in truth, forgiving iniquity, transgression, and sin. And He is the rewarder of them that diligently seek Him. And withal, He is most just. And He's terrible in His judgments. He hates all sin. And He will by no means clear the guilty. Could you pull together Old and New Testament and make a statement about who God is? The free Lord of all who has all power and all wisdom and all holiness and glory and goodness. It is this God who by His grace has predestined you for adoption as His children and made you His own. And He not only works all things according to the counsel of His own immutable and most righteous will for His own glory, not only for His own glory, but Romans 8 tells us there in your bulletin, we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to His purpose. Right? He works all things for His own glory, but He says and He does all things for the good of His people. Do you believe in this God? Don't answer too quickly. Do you believe in this God? Because if we do, our hearts will be tamed. The sea will grow calm. In the presence of an almighty God who is actively and unquestionably for us in Christ. How do we know that He's for us? Because of the Gospel. Because He says that He has given His own Son to make us His own. Romans 8.32, just a few verses later, after He says He will work all things together for the good of those who are, love Him and are called according to His purpose. Just a few verses later there in your bulletin, He says, if God is for us, in this way, if God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare His own Son, but gave Him up for us all, how will He not also together with Him give us everything? In the giving of the Son, He has given us all things. And if He is for us in this way, God is unreservedly and irrevocably for us. He covenants with His people in the blood of His own Son. This cup is the new covenant with you in my blood. Covenant between God and His people. He is irrevocably and unreservedly for His people. In other words, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ has become our God and Father. Believe in God. And then he says, believe also in me. Believe also in me. And it's interesting, the construction in the Greek. In Greek, the writing of Greek is an interesting language. I really enjoyed studying it. I, need, I wish I could brush it up. But I, I know enough that I can go play with it. And, and the construction, and the way they put sentences together, they had a lot of freedom in how to do it. And they would put things at the front that they wanted to emphasize or put things together. And this sentence actually says, believe on both ends. The sentence ends with the word believe and believe. And in the middle it says, in God, in me. And he puts, he bookends it with belief and he puts in God and in me together, side by side. Believe in God, in me also believe. Right? In God and in me. And he hooks them together. 
sets them side by side. And so here we could do a whole sermon on the deity of Christ and His relationship with the Father. This call for faith that the Bible only calls for in God Himself. And He puts here and bookends in this believing this in the Father and in the Son. In, in, in God and in me. The point here is the God who is your Father has come near in the Son. In John 14, 6, just a few verses from here, Jesus is going to say, I am the way and I am the truth and I am the life and no one comes to the Father except through me. And we all know and we take that and it is a statement of the exclusive nature of, of the saving life and death of Christ that no man comes to the Father but by Christ. No one is saved except through Christ. He is the only way of salvation. And so it is clearly a statement that says that. But I believe in this context, in, in, in what comes into it and what flows out of it, it's also an exclusive statement of the way to receive and to experience all things Christian. You want peace? The way to true peace is in the life of Christ. He is the way, He is the truth, He is the life. And no one comes to the Father. All the benefits that God has given to His children flow to us through Christ. He is the way, the truth, and the life. And everything we desire flows to us from the Father through the Son. Including the peace of an untroubled heart. The next three chapters then will extensively speak about the outpouring of the Spirit and abiding in Christ and bearing fruit. You know, when you say, what is the fruit He wants us to bear in that statement that we all are so familiar with? And there's a danger to think it's, you know, to read out of it or read into it all kinds of different fruit, whether it's a fruitful growing church or fruitful this or that or fruits of, you know. But the context is, what he says is he says, and you'll bear much fruit before it and after it. And running through this whole is a sermon we did last week about love. Love one another. And, and even as he goes through that whole thing, if you have my commands, you'll love one another. He who loves me will, will love one another. In this whole thing, love is the first fruit of the Spirit. And he says, if you abide in me, you will bear much fruit. Starting with the first fruit, which is love and joy and peace. So there in John 14, 26 and 7, you can look ahead. The theme runs through the passage. He says, the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, the helper, who is the Holy Spirit, whom the Father is going to send to you in my name, Verse 26, and then verse 27, peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give it to you, so let not, and he says it again, let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. Right, the promise of the outpouring of the Holy Spirit precedes, right, the promise that he will give us peace. The promise of peace follows on the promise of the Holy Spirit. And it's only then in this text that he commands. Right? Do you see it, what he commands? Let not your heart be troubled. He just said, I'm going to give it to you. My peace I give to you. My peace I leave to you. When the Holy Spirit comes, you know, in the, in the, the teaching of the world, and then he commands it. Command what you will, O oh Lord. 
But then give us what you command because it is beyond our natural ability to produce it. It's dangerous even to try to drum it up and to pretend and to pull our bootstraps up. He says, His word of command comes with power. Just as He spoke to the wind and the waves and He said, peace be still. The power that actually stilled them was not in the waves or in the wind, but it was in the speaker. He not only speaks peace, it is His power that actually accomplishes that peace. Even as He commands it. Of whether it's commands it of winds and waves or you or I. We're told after He commanded it, peace be still, we're told that the wind ceased. And there was a great calm. I mean, isn't that it? The wind ceased, and there was a great calm. Long for that deep in my soul. Come to me, all who are weary laden, and I will give you rest for your souls. See, the beauty of all of this, my friends, is that he takes this pursuit of peace and contentment that all of us have, that is hardwired into human nature. He's made us so that we, of course, want Love, joy, peace, happiness, contentment. He has wired us to want it. But he takes the pursuit of these things out of the area of works and out there and he takes them and he puts them in the context of a relationship with the God who made you. Right? Do we see that? He puts it, you, let your hearts not be troubled. You want peace? You want the untroubled heart? Believe in God. In me also, believe. The pursuit of peace and the pursuit of Jesus are the same thing in one respect. He is the Prince of Peace and the Lord of Peace. And He promises and says, I will give you my peace. And it's a peace that's not like the world's. It's beyond all these things. He is the way and He invites us to know Him and to trust Him and to be still and to know that He is God. And so Philippians puts peace and prayer and relationship together, I think, beautifully in, in a similar way to here. I'm going to look at that Philippians passage again. It was back up, I think, under one or two. Only I'm going to add verse 9. Unless maybe I put it in there again. I'm going to add verse 9. He says this, Do not be anxious about anything. Let not your hearts be troubled. But believe in God. Believe also in me. But in everything, by prayer, supplication, with thanksgiving, come, let your requests be made known unto God. And the peace of God which passes all understanding will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. And then in verse 9 he says, and the God of peace will be with you. Right, and you see the relationship that is the cap and the conclusion, the period on the whole issue. Do you want the peace of God? Then you must get hold of the God of peace. Right? And that's the connection, then you must have the God of peace reigning in the center of your life, the power of His Spirit. Believe in God. Let your heart go out to Him. The peace of God will not reign in our hearts unless the God of peace Himself reigns there also. And it's as we know Him and love Him and walk with Him and come to Him and pour out our hearts in Him 
in shorthand, believe in God. And believe also in Christ. Pray with me. Father in heaven, we confess that the peace that we long for and the contentment that we crave is so often outside of our grasp. We live on that troubled sea where wind and waves disturb our souls. We are weary and heavy laden very often. Oh, we want this peace that you promised to give, not as the world gives. We want our hearts to be calm, for the wind to cease. Father, call us to faith. Let us know you. Let us believe in you. Let us see you with eyes wide open. A God who reigns over the circle of the earth in sovereignty and power, awesome and for us. Who is good. And who works all things together. Capture our hearts and our minds with faith. That we would believe in you like this. That we would trust in Christ. And that you would indeed give rest to our souls. Which sets us free for everything else you call us to. These things we ask and we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.